You're listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Dilavan Barwari. This episode features an interview with Robert Ford, the former U.S. ambassador to Algeria and Syria, and former deputy ambassador to Iraq from 2008 to 2010. Ambassador Ford discusses his experience in Iraq and shares his views about the developments in the region. The interview was conducted by Alex Ebzeri, who is no longer with our mission. The KRG greatly appreciates his service and wishes him the best of luck in his future endeavors. The interview was conducted a few weeks ago, but it's still very relevant today. But before listening to the interview, I will be giving you a brief update about the latest news from Kurdistan and the rest of Iraq. So please stay tuned. First, some news about the new cabinet in Baghdad. Last month, we discussed the appointment of the new Iraqi Prime Minister, Mustafa Kadami and the 15 ministers that were approved by the Iraqi parliament. Earlier this month, the Iraqi parliament approved the remaining seven cabinet posts. The cabinet now has three Kurdish ministers, including Dr. Fuad Hossein, who is a well-known personality in Washington, D.C. He is now Iraq's new minister of foreign affairs. Overall, the KRG is optimistic and supportive of the new PM, and is hoping that he will try to resolve some of the long-standing disputes between Erbil and Baghdad. Nevertheless, Prime Minister Kadami has a challenging task ahead. He's expected to lead the country through the economic crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, and a resurgent Islamic State. According to the Washington Institute, in the first three months of this year, ISIS staged more than 566 attacks in Iraq. That is alarming, and points out to the urgent need for a joint security mechanism between the Peshmerga forces and the Iraqi army to contain the situation. Moving on to another important event. The first round of the strategic dialogue between the U.S. and Iraq took place on June 11th. The two sides discussed security, counterterrorism, political and energy issues, as well as cultural relations. The KRG was represented in the Iraqi delegation by Fauzi Haridi, the chief of staff of Nechivan Barzani, the president of the Kurdistan region. The next meeting is likely to take place in July, where all strategic issues will be on the agenda. Security and economic issues are expected to take up most of the discussion. All of these events have taken place in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. After a very good start and relatively low numbers of infected cases, the Kurdistan region has seen an alarming rise in the number of COVID-19 cases in recent weeks. On May 31st, there were 745 confirmed cases. The number jumped to 3,273 as of June 19th. That's more than four times the number in less than two weeks. The recent spike is believed to be caused by the relaxing of the lockdown that came following the pressure from businesses to reopen and may have also been caused by people's movement during the Eid holiday. The pandemic and the fall in oil prices have caused economic difficulties for both Erbil and Baghdad. On a positive note, a KRG delegation is planning to visit Baghdad in the coming days to secure a short-term and a long-term agreement on oil and revenue-sharing disputes which have complicated relations for years. Another promising development is that economic reform is a significant component of Prime Minister Masroub Barzani's overall reform agenda, with prime focus on agriculture. Late in May, the High Agricultural Board was established to pave the way for a more dynamic agricultural development in Kurdistan. Prime Minister Masroub Barzani chaired the first board meeting on Thursday, June 11th. This is especially important because agriculture has historically been the backbone of the Kurdish economy. On the humanitarian side, The Kurdistan region continues to host more than 1 million internally displaced persons and refugees. About 244,000 are Syrian refugees, Kurds from Rojava, and about 745,000 are Iraqi IDPs that escaped ISIS, including Christians and Yazidis who fled genocide. 
And here in the U.S., the KRG representative Bayan Abdurrahman has been holding virtual meetings with congressional leaders, officials from the Departments of State and Defense, as well as the White House. She also joined the Iraqi delegation that participated in what is known as the Foreign Ministers of Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. Finally, our update on culture is captivating. Nuri's latest single, Miss All Your Jokes, made it to the top of iTunes streaming ranking in New Zealand. You should check it out. Nuri is a Kurdish pop singer. She teamed up with the five-time Grammy Award-winning producer Brian Kennedy for her latest project, which was officially released on May 22nd. That's the news update. Now, the interview with Ambassador Robert Ford. Welcome to the podcast, Ambassador Ford. Thank you. It's nice to be here. We often talk about the shared values between the people of Kurdistan and the United States, and you served as a diplomat in Syria and Iraq and, and many parts of the Middle East. And you know the Kurdish and the diverse people of the region very well. What do you think are some of the most significant values that the people of Kurdistan and the people of America share? I think the most important value that they share is a belief uh, in development, in opportunity for individuals, um, for people to be able to make their own choices, uh, and for a sort of stability that allows communities to develop and grow, uh, especially in places like Erbil and Suleimania, we have seen uh, people who reject extremism and people who instead want to offer a variety of views and opportunities for artistic expression, for economic expression, um, increasingly for political expression. And those are all things that Americans strongly support. You said in a conversation recently that you had posed the question to several senior Kurdish officials uh, of what they envision Kurdistan region's relationship with America to look like down the road in 10, 20, 30 years. And you noted that currently the relationship is primarily military. But I want to turn that question on you um, and ask, how do you think America would like the relationship to look? So I have to be honest and say the vast majority of Americans would not even know where Kurdistan is. We have to be honest about that. Americans are just not very good at understanding the world. But for those Americans, and there are many who have served in the American military, for example, or business people um, who specialize in markets in Asia and Africa, Europe, they will know uh, where Kurdistan is and they will know who uh, Kurds are. People like that um, have been so focused over the last 15 years with the difficulties in Iraq, ranging from terrorism to establishing a new permanent Iraqi government that is itself stable and respects the freedoms that Iraqis are supposed to enjoy under the Iraqi constitution. And at the same time, over the last 15 years in Iraq and in Iraqi Kurdistan, there has been a lot of pushing and pulling and unfortunately a lot of violence, especially in the areas of Iraq outside of the Iraqi Kurdish region. That is now calming down, I hope, um, in many ways. And so looking ahead, instead of the Americans' heavy focus on security and military cooperation with the Iraqi Kurdish region, I hope 
that there's a much greater emphasis on things such as cultural exchanges. Uh, there is an exhibit of Kurdish art at the Middle East Institute now. I would love to see a greater uh, focus on educational exchanges. I teach at Yale University. I would love for there to be exchange programs between Yale and the university either in Suleimania or in Dohuk. I would love to see uh, students from Suleimania and Dohuk come to the United States on exchange programs at American uh, universities and colleges here. I'd like to see um, a diversification of American uh, business interests. It's been heavily focused in uh, especially the energy sector in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, but I think there are many areas where the Americans could provide um, other useful investments, whether that be in uh, agriculture or in uh, business services, finance, uh, construction and uh, development. There are a lot of things that, that both the business and the education sectors could do that would grow as uh, the military emphasis declines as the security situation in Iraq improves. As a, I guess as a follow-up to that, can you, can you outline for me in a, in a very short, maybe succinct way, for America, what do you think is an ideal but also realistic status quo, or I mean end state is not the right word because there is no end, but a status quo that's ideal but also realistic in Kurdistan and Iraq several decades down the road? I think the most important aspect to your question is respect for the Iraqi constitution. And I was present when Iraqis were negotiating that and drafting that constitution in 2005. In fact, many of the most important meetings between the Iraqis were hosted by uh, then-Iraqi Kurdish region President Masoud Barzani um, at his uh, compound in Baghdad. Uh, it was a very contentious drafting process, to be honest, and the issues of things like federalism uh, were hotly debated among the Iraqis. But there is now a an Iraqi constitution which was ratified. Uh, there was a national referendum in October of 2005, and it was approved. And so the question now in 2020, 15 years later, is can all of the different communities and all of the different government entities in Iraq respect that constitution. And if they can, and there have been problems, but if they can, then the Iraqi Kurdish region will enjoy a substantial amount of control and decision-making over the issues which I think are the most important to people there, ranging from education and health to economic development and security. Um, the role of the Peshmerga, for example, is uh, defined and approved in the Iraqi constitution. There, the Peshmerga will continue to exist. I think they have to. So um, all of these things uh, matter for the future of the Iraqi Kurdish region. And I, I distinctly recall a conversation I had with then-President Masoud Barzani, this conversation was in 2006, and I said, do you think 
this will be enough for the Iraqi Kurds, or will you still want independence? And he said to me, if the Constitution is respected, then we will have the lives of dignity and freedom that we want, and we can remain in Iraq. And I think what he said then, in 2006, still applies now in 2020. What was your view of the independence referendum that happened in 2017? And, and why do you think that the U.S. and Kurdistan ended up disagreeing so much about the referendum? I'll speak very frankly. Um, I thought it was a reasonable question for the Iraqi Kurdish region government to put to Iraqi Kurds. I didn't think the referendum itself was illegal, as some people in Iraq argued on thought the referendum was perfectly legal. There's nothing in the Constitution that said it can't be held. The wisdom, the political wisdom of holding it, I think is a different question. Uh, There was no support uh, in the region for the Iraqi Kurdish region to become an independent state. Turkey was against it. Uh, The government in Baghdad was against it. The government in Iran was against it. Um, Those are three big countries with big militaries, and there clearly were going to be problems. The other mistake, I think, that was made, speaking frankly, was to extend the voting in the referendum to areas whose uh, ownership were still contested, and notably in Kirkuk. Um, Had Kirkuk not been included in the referendum, had the voting been strictly in Irbil, Dohuk, and Suleimania, I think we might have seen a different reaction among uh, the prime minister and the government authorities in Baghdad. But Kirkuk is still a very sensitive issue, clearly has to be negotiated still between the Iraqi Kurdish region government and Baghdad. Uh, And the referendum holding uh, the vote in Kirkuk during the referendum seemed to foreclose the negotiations, which I think is one of the reasons Baghdad reacted so strongly. As a follow-up to that answer and, and that question, can you, is, there a, is there a mechanism? I mean, obviously in the, in the Constitution, there's Article 140 that lays out a mechanism for resolving the disputed territories. Um, is there, maybe a mechanism is not the right word, maybe a path today towards um, resolving the issues around the disputed territories that you see? I think the issue has to be addressed, and it's been, it is very sensitive, but I think if Iraqis, Iraqi Kurdish region and, and the communities in the Iraqi Kurdish region and on the south side of the, uh, the Green Line, uh, the communities there and the government in Baghdad and the, and the political community in Baghdad, if they would begin to actually address these things, it would perhaps increase confidence between the two sides. I think there's got to be an agreement on how to negotiate this. So there has to be a discussion about how to negotiate. Can Iraqis do it amongst themselves? Do they want some kind of a mediator? Should the mediator be from the United Nations? Is there some other entity, some NGO, um, some other government that they would want to be a mediator? How do they want to do it? Do they want it to be one big package? Do they want to go in segments, um, maybe leaving hardest issues like Kirkuk till the end? These are all things that Iraqis, both Iraqi Kurds and Iraqis 
in the other parts of the country need to agree amongst themselves. There should not be a solution imposed upon them from outside. I don't think that would be at all sustainable. Um, I have to say, frankly, uh, the Americans had a certain window when they could have played a helpful role on this. It was during my time at the American embassy in Baghdad 10, 12 years ago, and we failed to do it. And that is, that is our fault, and that is our mistake. Um, and I regret that. Do you think there's a role today for Americans to play in resolving the dispute? I, I, think that, I think if there's an American role, it would be that the Iraqis would have to decide they want an American role, and Iraqis would have to come to the United States. I think at this point, uh, Iraqis are perfectly capable of solving their own problems. We've seen them negotiate how many cabinets over the years. Um, those cabinet negotiations are always long and painful, but they, they do it. And um, it's hugely increased my respect uh, for Iraq as a country and for uh, Iraqi political figures that they are able to do these negotiations. They don't seem to be able to do it in a place like Syria. So uh, if they want the Americans, they can come to the Americans and ask, and we'll have to decide if the United States is willing to spend the time and, and assign the people to do that. You're a, you're a very experienced diplomat. You've served throughout the Middle East and throughout the world. What has helped you prepare for a new posting, I guess, in general? Um, and more specifically, what advice would you give to an American diplomat or an American businessman heading to Kurdistan if they wanted to work successfully in the local community? I cannot say that I uh, went to Iraq very well prepared when I first went there in 2003 after the American military deposed the Saddam Hussein regime. Uh, I knew very little about the different communities, about the Kurdish community in the north, about the Shia community down in the south, and the Sunni communities, particularly in the west and the center of the country. I knew very little about them. And I had not, I only had read one book, Sandra Mackey's uh, The Awakening, and uh, it was not a particularly helpful book. So... I distinctly remember the very first time I met uh, uh, Iraqi President Mamjalal Talabani. He started talking to me about the Treaty of Sevres and the injustice done to the Kurds, and I had never even heard of the Treaty of Sevres, which is pathetic. Um, so I take no pride in being particularly well prepared. I was not. And Frankly, none of us at the American embassy were particularly well prepared. That's just an admission. Uh, what I would recommend to um, educators or businessmen who are um, headed off to Kurdistan is uh, do some good reading, uh, some good books. Um, I personally like very much uh, uh, a book about uh, the Kurdish region as a whole, but in particular the Iraqi Kurdish region, which is called Invisible Nation. Um, and I would also recommend that people going there um, meet as many people as possible. Uh, Iraqi Kurds are not monolithic. They have different viewpoints. They have different backgrounds. They have different educational experiences. And uh, don't just depend on one or two people and think you understand the entire region. Uh, there's a variety there, and uh, it's a very interesting variety. It's very rich. Um, and the other thing I would recommend is there's now 
a well-established university in Suleimani, and there's an, uh, a new and growing university in Dohuk, uh, both affiliated with American uh, educational uh, people. And I would try to go visit them and um, call on them and see if you could get the perspectives of some of the Americans who work in those places um, and have themselves learned about uh, the Iraqi Kurdish region. I think there's a ready source for Americans. If you could see one initiative in the Kurdistan region to promote peace and prosperity in Iraq or the greater Middle East, what do you think it would be? One of the things which I've admired a lot about uh, Kurdish communities that I've uh, talked with in Syria and in the Iraqi Kurdish region is, is a dynamism among younger people, um, many of whom have traveled, um, have been to Europe, Turkey. Um, a few have been around the Middle East, um, but they're they're traveled and they are also uh, well educated, and they're now starting to set up. Um, organizations, uh, women's rights organizations, children's rights organizations, um, young entrepreneurial associations. Um, this kind of civil society development, I think, is terribly lacking in the Middle East as a whole. And part of it is uh, government repression, particularly in places like uh, Syria, uh, but also in places like Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's a problem. And I see this growth developing in the Iraqi Kurdish region. I've seen it grow actually in the Syrian Kurdish region, the autonomous area, although there have been problems there with the uh, Rojova government. But there's a drive for it among the communities, and I think it's terrific. And I think if Kurdish communities can show how those organizations can develop and can work together, it would be a marvelous example uh, for the rest of the region. So at the end of every podcast, at the end of every interview, we ask three questions. So I'll give you all three of them here. When was the first time you heard about Kurdistan? I had never heard of uh, Kurdistan until I went into graduate school at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. This was in 1979, and I was uh, specializing in Middle East studies at the school, and there was a discussion in one of my classes about Saddam Hussein, and a professor mentioned in passing, he didn't dwell on it for more than a minute, about Saddam Hussein's repression of Kurdish communities, and I had never heard of Kurdish communities. I didn't even know. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a Kurdish community. What's one word or phrase that sums up Kurdistan for you? Well, I I go back to that book I mentioned, Invisible Nation, and and I really do see it that way. Although it's becoming also increasingly visible. Uh, the referendum result was, I think, ninety seven percent in favor. Of independence that doesn't surprise me a bit uh, when I was working in Baghdad we always had the impression that there was strong support for independence in uh, the Iraqi Kurdish region but it is it is a nation in evolution and development 
whether it will be independent in 50 years or 100 years, I don't know. Might be. On the other hand, there might be a Middle East Union, like there's a European Union. Who knows? So, but I like Invisible Nation at least as a starting point. And because this is the Kurdistan in America podcast, it's only fair that we ask, what is one word or phrase that sums up America for you? That's a hard one. Maybe it's hard because I'm in America, and so it's hard to think of one thing that sums us up. But I guess what I would say, America really is about what's uh, the expression from our founders, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that is the American ethos. Well, Robert Ford, thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.